Well, hey everyone, good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Thankful to have you here worshiping with us on this beautiful, snowy Sunday morning. Uh, I admit, last night I was in our basement, uh, like, watching a football game, and I, I realized it was, like, getting kind of late, and so I kind of ran upstairs uh, and was like, I need to get ready for bed, because we get up kind of early on Sunday mornings, and I, like, glanced outside, and I was like, oh, where did all this snow come from? I was not ready for it, uh, and neither was our dog when I took her to the bathroom last night. She just stood at the door and was like, this was not here a few hours ago when I last went out here. So, um, but I, 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 yeah, hopefully you didn't have any trouble getting here. Hopefully you all remember how I drive in the snow, um, or if it's your first time uh, ever driving in the snow, I know that's an experience for people sometimes when they move to the area. So uh, if you're here and it's your, your first time with that, or you're watching online and, and uh, you, you decide not to drive in the snow for that reason or something, uh, you know, um, we're, we're with you. Uh, it was kind of a change, but it's fun. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, and uh, we are going to uh, continue on in this, this season. It makes me feel like uh, we're into Advent season now, and that's really exciting. Um, I know we've, been, you know we've been putting up uh, the, the candles, we put the tree up, we've been doing Christmas music and everything, but snow is kind of, at least if you live in Minnesota, kind of an essential piece to feeling like we're in Christmas season. And so I'm excited about that, because that's what we're talking about today, is we're talking about Advent and, and the coming of a God who keeps his word. Um, so we are going to uh, walk through that this morning. Let me pray first before we get uh, started with the sermon, um, and, and then we will uh, walk through our text this morning. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday morning. We thank you for the snow, God. It is a gift. Um, we're thankful that even though uh, it sometimes can be a pain, uh, sometimes um, it's hard to deal with, that we live in, a, in an area where we can experience uh, full seasons, um, including the beauty of the, the snow that you created, that you keep uh, in the storehouse, and that you have uh, come down to earth for its appointed time. Uh, we thank you that we are, we are in that appointed time and we can enjoy it and, and celebrate its coming, God, um, as well as the coming of your son, Jesus. Um, let your spirit be with us this morning as we reflect on that. We pray in his name. Amen. So, um, it, you know, cr- Christmas time for me growing up in high school meant our Christmas band concert. So I played trumpet growing up in our, in our high school band. I don't know if, if any of you had a similar experience. And in our school, we had a bunch of different uh, like, like types of, of things that we would do in the band. So we had like a concert band, we had a marching band, we had pep band. Um, and I really enjoyed some of those things, especially like pep band. I really was excited whenever we got to do, you know, pep band, and we got to play the songs. Usually, like, my, my uh, band instructor, like, was really into 70s rock, so we played a lot of 70s rock pep band songs for some, some reason, but they were actually re- really fun to play, and I was not bad at it, and I would really try hard for those songs. But when it came to some of our concert band songs, especially because, like, pep band, I played the same songs from freshman year all the way to senior year. But in concert band, we would mix it up every year. So I didn't have a ton of time to learn all the songs. And I was not, you know, what you might call a savant at playing my trumpet. Um, I wasn't necessarily the greatest trumpet player ever. And so at some parts, especially in some of the concert band pieces, I wouldn't try as hard. Uh, In fact, I would actually sometimes just move my fingers on the valves. Yeah, I see some nodding heads. Okay, this is... This makes me feel a little bit better about myself, um, that, that other people would do this. So I, I would, you know, we had some other stronger trumpet players, and I would let them do the heavy lifting of playing the notes, 
But I would get all the reward of looking like I was doing it because I would, you know, uh, move my fingers right over the valves. And no one could tell that I wasn't, you know, playing it right. There was no problem w with that. Um, and so in those moments, I was really about sort of the show, just making sure everyone else around me thought that I was doing my part to sort of help the band out. There wasn't really alignment between what I was actually doing and what people were seeing or what I was showing or kind of telling people in a sense, you know, who I was, like someone who could actually pull this off. And it's really because I didn't have hope that I could, could play th those parts, right? Um, and it was kind of a, you know, if you think about it, kind of a very cynical way to get by in, in band, right? Like a very practical, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to get by because I don't really have hope I could pull this off on my own. And it, you know, Acting very cynically like that kind of means like what, it, you know, what the best way for me to get by is is to just kind of make people think I'm trying and it kind of reduces everything to perception as opposed to what you're actually doing. Okay? And that's what happens a lot of times when, when you sort of are, are cynical like that. Now, um, because I said like pep band, right? Remember I said I enjoyed that? Well, well one year our uh, band teacher, he was like, you know, it'd be fun to add in a baritone into our pep band. And I thought that sounded really cool, so I volunteered to play it. Now, a baritone is like, you play it just like a trumpet, but it looks like a tuba, okay? So, you know, so, and so you would play some similar parts, but it was a little bit different. And I, again, I knew those songs really well, so I, you know, like I was able to play those pretty easily, but my band instructor was like, well, why don't you keep playing baritone throughout the year and the other stuff that we do? And I was like, I guess I will do that. Uh, and so I, I went and started playing the baritone, and actually a sophomore came and played with me, and so we're getting into some of these harder, you know, concert band songs. And actually, now I'm getting solos. Like, there's actually parts, not really maybe a solo, but there's a moment in the song where it's like the baritone sort of breaks in and, like, you know, plays a really big note. And I realize I'm going to have to actually start being able to play this now because, and get this, the sophomore who came with, he would do the same thing I did when I was playing trumpet. So he would actually, he would be like, I don't think I can play this part. And I'd be like, I think you can. It's, if I can do it, you probably can too. Um, and so we would get into the, <laughs> into the concerts and I would look over at him and he would be like, and I was like, nothing's coming out of the baritone. I'd probably own that can tell. So anyway, it really came back to bite me in the butt uh, eventually. But it came to a point where my sort of unfaithfulness, the sort of unalignment, my cynicism about my ability to play, um, was you know, going to become like a real problem for the rest of the band. There was actually real consequences for me not doing that, having no hope and not living like that, aligned in between sort of my, what I was telling people I was doing and my actions. All right. Now this Advent, the, the big idea of the sermon series is that we're talking about God keeping his word. We're talking about his faithfulness. Okay? We're, we're celebrating that God isn't like you and me. Okay? Because in a sense, if you think about it, faithfulness is about alignment between our word and what we say we will do and what we actually do, right? That's kind of what faithfulness really is. We say something is going to happen, and then, you know, we're not just sort of, uh, you know, worried about the perception, making people think something's going to happen, but we follow through on that. At Advent season, at Christmas, we celebrate a God who does that, Okay, a God who actually says he'll do something and then shows up. We're celebrating the actual event of God's faithfulness. Now, typically, we get really excited about Christmas. I know this about, about most of us, and I feel it too. Like I said, I get, I'm getting really excited, kind of even seeing the snow on the ground. That's really exciting to me. But it's good to ask ourselves every time around this, you know, this season what we're getting excited about. 
Are we getting caught up in the sort of like shallow consumer driven joy of car commercials with like, I watch a lot of football, right? And so the, it's, you get, you guys, it's apparently like you just get truck commercials when you watch football games. Like it's all you get. And for Christmas season, it's tr- commercials of some wife buying her husband a truck and putting a gigantic bow on the top of it. They're all the same, basically, right? But that's kind of like how we approach Christmas a lot of time. Like, oh, it's exciting, a new thing. We put a big bow on it. We act a little differently than we do normally in this time of year. Where, and Christmas just kind of becomes this sort of like cheerful distraction, like a sort of month-long you know, Netflix binge that just kind of you know, takes our attention away from whatever we had been dealing with you know, before Christmas season started, and then that's there when we leave it again. Like, there's not really necessarily any change. It's just now we're a little bit distracted from that. Um, and actually, you know, literally, we were watching, um, Julie and I get really into the show, The Great British Baking Show. Anyone, I know there's a few other fans in here uh, of that show because we talk about it with you. And they do like a holiday special every year where they release like, you know, people coming and making Christmas bakes. Uh, and we watched that yesterday. And actually, one of the hosts at the end of the episode you know, actually said this very explicitly. She was like, um, you know, the world is like, I'm paraphrasing, but the world is kind of a crummy place a lot of times, and I hope that you watching this were able to just sort of, for a little bit of time, tune out from that stuff and just have some fun and feel some cheer, right? That was kind of the, the point of this Christmas special in her mind, and I think we approach Christmas a lot of times like that too, just sort of like a, we're going to check out, we're going to you know, build up these feelings of, of happiness within us that don't really do anything other than just kind of take us out of the, you know, uh, you, you know, not remind us of what's going on, as opposed to sort of the celebration uh, that, that God has done something, he's been faithful to what he said he was going to do, and we can actually have hope in that, that transforms us and changes us as we go through this season and then leave it eventually to go back to like our normal lives, like, you know, regularly scheduled programming. And so the big idea today is this, Right? Often our lives are you know, like me on the trumpet, right? where we say one thing, we project one thing to other people. could be worship, could be cheerfulness, could be happiness. And, and, but we're misaligned. right? What we're actually doing or believing or our character don't always align perfectly with that, maybe because we have some cynicism or some lack of hope. But at Christmas, what we celebrate is a God whose word and character, uh, words and then his character and his actions are actually have total alignment. And we can have hope in that faithfulness, even if we or the world around us does not have that alignment, is often very unfaithful. So that's what we're going to unpack today. And we're going to do it by walking through the prophet Micah, and then uh, something he says about what God is going to do that Matthew picks up in his account of Jesus' birth. So the prophet Micah, it's a short book, uh, written in your Old Testament. It's, it's found with the other, what are called minor prophets oftentimes. It basically just means the shorter books of the prophets. Um, but Micah's actually writing at the same time as the prophet Isaiah, who's writ, written one of the longest books in the Old Testament, is one of the most kind of important sort of load-bearing look, uh, books in, in the Old Testament. And the prophets, what they do is they call Israel to be who God has made them to be, to remain in line with their calling or sort of suffer the consequences of them not living in alignment with that covenant. And prophecy, I think, still functions that way for us today as a challenge to sort of live in line with the calling that God has put on us. And different prophets, because they speak into different, you know, specific historical settings, have different lines of critique depending on whatever's going on in Israel or Judah at the moment. 
And Micah's, his, his specific line of critique for Israel is found in a very famous uh, line in, in Micah 6, 6 to 8. Let me read it for you real quick. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Is it these fantastic shows of worship, you know, sacrifices upon sacrifices, as far as the eye can see, done in sort of endless uh, uh, ritual to please God? Is that what God is looking for? No. What the Lord requires of you is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So what he's saying is, is these outward shows of your worship, your prayer, your sacrifice, etc., they're, they're, you're doing them, but they're not aligned with your actions, with your character, with your dispositions that reflect what the worship is supposed to create in you, that the worship has sort of gone into you and then come back out again as you sort of live your life outside of that moment of sacrifice or worship to God. And instead, this is an actual line from the book, God says, you hate good and you love evil. Okay, this is actually what it looks like when you live your lives. Not when you come to me in sacrifice or worship, but when you actually go out of those places. And so these shows of worship, they just sort of point to nothing. Okay, they're just external acts with nothing rooting them. Not pointing in any direction, just something for perception for everyone else around. Okay, and so they have no value. What good are they, God is saying, if there's nothing behind them? Because God desires alignment between the two, and when there is alignment, only then is there any really, any really, uh, really any power to that worship, sort of going out of us into God's world to make us into the people that God has called us to be. And this really matters because Israel is actually supposed to be part of God's purposes in redeeming the world. Right? He gives them a trumpet, the, the, the covenant and the law in his presence, so that they can play that sort of sweet music of worship and, and, and benefit the world around them. So God wants them to learn that and really belt it out, right? to, to play that trumpet loudly. But all they're doing is sort of just moving their fingers over the valves. There's nothing really coming out of the trumpet, but it looks like they're, worship, like they're playing it. It looks like they're worshiping. And now the word hypocrisy, if you actually go back to the original Greek word that we take it from in our English today, it literally means play acting, right? It actually kind of refers to an actor on a stage playing a part, right, for everybody to see, but doesn't actually say anything about who they are when they're not on the stage, you know, reciting some lines, trying to, you know, impress an audience or something like that, okay? And, and so what, if you think about it, really the audience for Israel is not God, but actually other, everybody else, or maybe themselves even. And if anything, their worship is sort of, the, the worship, the acts that they're doing are kind of reinforcing this. There's these malformed heart issues because it lets them say, well, we're actually really pious. We're actually really good people because look at all the stuff we're doing. All right? So it actually kind of feeds into it and makes the problem even worse that there is already this disconnect there. The more that they do it, the worse and worse it gets. And so this is a problem for God, and it continues to be a problem for us today. And whether we're the ones doing it or we're affected by it, there's consequences. So for Israel, 
It was injustice. It was, you know, it was problems in the society itself because of the sort of show of what they're trying to get God and other people to see and what they were actually doing to the people around them. Okay, but there are other ways in which this can hurt people too, right? Uh, if you follow people who are doing this, right, that they're saying one thing and they're telling you to do the same thing, but you find out behind the scenes their actions are not actually reflective of what they're telling you to do or, or say that they're doing, like, we'll feel betrayed and hurt, right? And you can imagine, like, I'm sure all of you can imagine the damage of when public figures do things like this, right? Especially people we might follow or admire, how much that can really hurt people. Okay, there's countless examples of that today, and, 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 and you, can, you probably are thinking of some that come to mind, right? Could be politicians, could be parents. The church is even not immune to this, unfortunately, okay? And this is, a, this is a problem. And when we do it ourselves, what we're sort of cultivating is an image that we have life, that we're flourishing, but there, you know, there isn't actually any life coming from that to us. And people around us might not know it, but we can sense that, Right? We can sort of feel that, and it can be frustrating, and that can start to make us really cynical. Now, for Israel, this is going to bring actual consequences on them. That's what God is saying through, uh, through the prophet uh, Micah. And, and it specifically, it's that Assyria, this other nation, uh, is going to come and invade them. And, and you know, eventually, Assyria does invade, but Micah has more to say about what God is going to do beyond that, and this is where we get into uh, the passage that Matthew's going to quote uh, in, in chapter 2 of, of his book and his account of Jesus' birth. So Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times." He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. So in, in, in Micah's time, God's response is to say, in effect, eventually I'm going to come and sort this all out. Out of a tiny, small town, one that's not necessarily considered very significant in the grand scheme of things, one who is going to be a ruler, who is going to lead you into faithfulness through my faithfulness to make you into the people that God has called you to be, this, is, this will happen, this will come. And he describes him in, in the language of a shepherd. He will come and shepherd his flock. Okay, now, the, the word shepherd in the ancient world often was used to describe a ruler or a king, someone who would, who would come in and actually lead and guide people. It was a divine sort of title given to people who would actually lead and guide them well, kind of like a, a real shepherd would do with the sheep, caring for them well, guiding them to the places that they needed to go and being uh, out for their, for their well-being. Okay? He, he will lead the people into security both now and then ultimately, eventually, into the future, into God's uh, eternal future. So Assyria invades, and, and around 600 years or so later, Israel still is sort of living in the wake of these consequences, right? Things that, you know, this has not actually come to pass, what, what the people have been waiting for. And so the kind of problems that uh, Micah is talking about continue to pass on throughout different generations, um, and, and the children deal with the consequences of that, but also themselves like, act like their parents, right? This continues to be an issue. 
And so it's actually not that surprising that when we you know, jump forward six to seven hundred years, we find that there's a, someone in charge of Israel, uh, King Herod, although he was actually just a governor. He wasn't actually really a king in that sense. He is in power, and he still fits this description that Micah is giving to the people of Israel in his own time. And this is what we find in Matthew 2, uh, 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go worship him. After they had heard the king, he went on their way, and the star, had seen, uh, the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route." So here's what's going on in, the, in this, this, this new time here. Um, King Herod, he's, he's actually the governor. He's kind of you know, running things for uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, he is like very many other rulers, and he's a very cynical person. Okay? He's sort of very concerned with uh, pragmatism and just kind of keeping himself in power. And we actually know from Herod, from other sources uh, from the time, that Herod actually, he really desired to be seen as the rightful king of Israel. This is a really important thing to him because that perception would sort of lead people to follow him. And so he didn't like say, I'm the Messiah, but he did do certain things that sort of you know, maybe would, would lend you to think that, or at least, if nothing else, lend you to think he's a really good Jewish king even though I believe he was, he was only half Jewish. So he did these extensive reforms at rebuilding the temple, trying to make the temple uh, a place, a very grand and, and um, uh, majestic place again. Um, and he, he married a Jewish woman to really kind of show to everybody the perception was that he is doing what a good Jewish king would do. And the fulfillment of God's actual promise, he sees as a major threat to him. Okay? God sending someone else to, to fill this role, he sees as like a, a reason to be afraid, not to celebrate. And so he finds this out when these, when these magi show up. Let's talk about them for a, a little bit, though, okay? The magi. So who are they and what, what, are, they, what are they up to? Now, there, we could get into this a lot more. Uh, it's not kind of a main point today, so I, I won't, but I do want to uh, uh, go into them a little bit. Um, you know, today we have sort of... Uh, well-respected experts in, in fields, right? Um, whether they're political or, or scientific, and they kind of have important roles within the government, um, you know, acting as advisors and, and uh, kind of like explaining here, you know, here's what we should do, like kind of giving their advice, right? Writing research papers or different things. Now, in the ancient world, astrology and magic were kind of the science of the day. And so um, ancient experts were people who were well-trained in those things. And the magi... 
uh, were, were people who were seen as experts in these areas. And they're especially associated with Babylon. If you look in the book of Daniel, we did a sermon series on this a couple years ago. Daniel actually receives training in Babylon that was probably training him to be someone like this. That's probably what he was actually getting trained to do, was to, be a, to, to, to sort of have the, the knowledge of a magi so he could fill the court of the king of Babylon and sort of give him wisdom from this stuff. Now, apparently this time, Magi were, were kind of all over. Babylon doesn't really exist anymore at this time, but Magi are still around, and we don't know everything they did, but astrology is clearly a big part of what, what they were up to. And so when they see this star in the east, they sort of travel to follow it. It was an ancient, or sorry, an, a, a, a common thing in the ancient world to see a star as sort of signaling um, a birth of someone important. Okay, so they figure this must be what's up. So they come over uh, to uh, Jerusalem uh, to try to figure out what's going on. Now, what, what is the star that they see? We don't know for sure, but there's actually some really interesting theories on this. And I know different people now who, who study uh, cosmology have some interesting theories. Um, some of the big ones are, it was a comet. Others are that it was a planetary conjunction. So Jupiter and Saturn, along with the constellation um, Pisces, formed this very bright light in the sky. We know this, actually, from our own study of the stars today. In 7 BC, so this would have been right around the time that Jesus was born, we know that some very uh, bright constellation of stars and planets came together that could have been this uh, thing. Um, it could have been a nova, which is a stellar explosion. Um, and we actually know from Chinese astronomers, astro- astronomers that they recorded a nova that was visible, visible for 70 days um, in five and, and into 4 BC, which would have been right before the death of Herod. So that would actually also make a lot of sense too. It could just be something else, right? It could be God in his sort of um, providence doing something you know, miraculous or at least unexplainable by our own understanding of science today um, to sort of bring about his signal that something important was up. Whatever it was, though, it gets these sort of experts' attention. And so, like a good diplomat, they are traveling through nations and they come into this new territory. They figure, let's go see the guy in charge and make sure he's cool with us doing this. And we'll actually ask him, too, like, do you have, are you guys studying this? Do you have any ideas who this might be pointing to? So he asks, you know, Herod, you know, or they ask Herod, like, you know, what's up with this? And Herod's freaked out by it. And so he goes and he's like, maybe this Messiah thing is going on. He checks with his experts. They go to the prophet Micah uh, and they say, it's going to be in Bethlehem. So they're like, okay, let's, let's see if this is actually the case. And he says to them, oh, if you find the child, let me know because I want to come worship him too when we know that his actual plans were to murder the kid. So he says, let me worship, okay? But his actions, his character is the complete opposite of it. There's this total disconnect between the two. So Herod looks just like the critique that Micah is giving in his own time. This is a man whose worship is all about appearances. It's only good if people see it. But deep down, he has sort of other plans, right? And we know, we can see this, that he has no value in actually hoping in God, right? He, he wants people to think he's worshiping, but in reality, he has no hope in a coming Messiah, okay? He only has hope in his sort of own ability to control the situation. That's what he deep down really has hope in or cares about. He's very cynical. So the Magi find that God has done something special in Bethlehem, and Matthew sees it as a sort of fulfillment. That's why he puts it into here. Um, I know he's recounting a story, but he intends for us to see it also as a fulfillment. That a king has come from the city of David, 
And God has signaled this, not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world. And this is why the Magi have showed up. He doesn't just want the people of Israel to celebrate the coming of this child. He wants the whole world to understand the significance of it and to find hope in this fulfillment. And that's why he makes sure to include the account of the Magi coming. He will rescue Israel and the whole world from their own play acting and from the, 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 the consequences of play acting of others um, so that it, the world may be restored. There might become alignment again between who we are and what we say we are. And so I want us to dwell on this as we uh, sort of enter into a time of application from all this today. The faithful shepherd gives us hope in this holiday season. Now for us, worship looks like following Jesus, right? That's what it means for us to worship God, to follow after Jesus directly, to, to do what he says for us to do, uh, to, to follow in, in being like him in every aspect of our lives, uh, uh, to celebrate and to worship him in the ways that he's kind of given us to do. But all of this, I want you to consider how all of this is actually really, it's an act of hope. When we worship, we are professing hope in something. We're saying we hope in something. And the same is, is true when we come to Christmas celebration, right? Whether or not we realize that our actions, the things that we say we're doing, the, thing, the songs we're singing, profess a hope in something, okay? And I think when we find that what we, you know, we say we believe through what we're, you know, we're worshiping, what we're singing, what we're sort of projecting to people, um, that when that doesn't match our character, our dispositions, or our actions, it shows, I think, oftentimes a disconnect between, uh, like, hope and, and what we actually expect to happen, right? It sort of shows that we might not actually have hope in the thing we're saying we have hope in, okay? So for me, I didn't have hope I could actually play the notes on the trumpet, so I pretended I was, but I was actually not acting like I could, right? I had no hope in that. Israel was given the covenant and the law to sort of help them worship, and they would sacrifice these calves, right? They would, they would sort of go to, to great lengths to show that they were doing this worship, but they were not actually walking in the sort of character and actions that should flow out of uh, that sort of worship. Specifically, what God is looking for there is humility and hope, which leads to uh, walking justly, mercifully, and humbly, okay? This is what worship was supposed to lead them to be, but instead... They believed that they had to rely on injustice, on perhaps cruelty, on pride. These would be the things that would actually secure them flourishing. And this is why God is so upset with them. And this is what's going on in Israel at this time. Herod said he worshipped the Jewish God, that he hoped in him as well, like he would expect a good Jewish king to do, but he had no hope in God's plan. Right? That's why he was behind the scenes trying to work out his own, because he didn't really think a coming king from God was good news for him. He didn't find any reason to hope in that, so his, his character and his actions didn't align with what he told other people. And that temptation is always going to be there for us too. It's people who also worship God and who do it around other people, we have the temptation is going to be there to just try to do it externally, but not actually let it, you know, inform who we are, to like influence who we become as we maybe leave our time of worship on Sunday morning. Okay, think about it. When we come here on Sunday morning, I imagine, like we would hope that God is speaking to us through the, the preaching of the word. We would hope that God is meeting us in our time of worship as we enter into his presence to sing to him, we would hope we would feel God's presence through uh, time with each other, of other people that the Spirit is working in. 
We would hope that as we celebrate Christ's body broken and his blood shed for us in communion every week, that we would believe that we're forgiven, that we can turn from our sin and our guilt and our shame and put our worth and our identity and our value in what is given to us by Jesus, the one whose body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Okay? We, would, we would think that as we worship that, that as we leave here on a Sunday morning, we would find our actions aligning with that. Um, or if we went beyond it to the other ways we would worship God throughout the week, reading our Bibles, we would have hope that God would renew our mind as we spend time in his word, seeking him out. That we, when we would pray, we hope that God would hear us. Right? When we gather in our community, group, community groups throughout the week, we would hope that what will make us more like Christ, that would help us to live lives that look more like him, to be blessings, to bring the gospel to the world around us. And that as we serve our city, that we would hope God would use it to bring the blessing of the gospel to our neighbors. Right? These are all things that as we, we do these things, as we worship God in these ways, these are all acts of hope that God is actually going to work through them. Okay? If we do all these things on a Sunday, but we don't live out of that worship throughout the week that God has spoken, that we have been in his presence, that we've been made whole and clean, it might not mean, it might be an indicator that we don't actually have a lot of hope in the things we're worshiping in, at least not always. Now, if you're feeling some conviction here, like I know I am as I was preparing this sermon, thinking about this, I don't want to I don't want to condemn you, okay? I actually want to be, be tender. I, I want us to reflect on sort of like the tenderness or the, the un, understand why this might be the case and then see Christmas as a time of hope to bring alignment between uh, what we say and what we, we worship and then what we actually do, okay? Because to be sure, we're, we're all part of the problem, but all year long, we have experiences in a world that is filled with sin, filled with hypocrisy, filled with hypocrisy, that is going to make us really cynical, right? We can easily sniff out, you know, the polish in people. We're really good. I know there's like, you know, people our age are really good at sort of sniffing out, um, you know, people who are just polished. There's no substance there, right? We're really good at that, um, okay? So we, we know that that happens a lot of times. We're quick to point it out. Um, we were just talking in our community group on Thursday about something called the Great Resignation. Um, really like, for, for the last decade or so, we've been, all of us, uh, living in this world that said, you know, the way to find value and hope and security is to work your butt off, find a job you love, throw yourself into it completely, burn yourself out, and then you will find hope and, and life and joy. And a lot of people are figuring out that's not, that's a load of bunk, right? That's not really how the world is. They're finding out there was no hope in that, Okay. So learning that's a lie, what a lot of people have done is sort of just, in the, what I think is kind of cynical, I'm not um, condemning this necessarily, but it's sort of like, okay, this stuff doesn't matter. A lot of people are quitting their jobs and just going on vacation for a year, right? Like they're, they're just kind of like trying to enjoy the time they have. They're, they're, they're putting all of their uh, sort of uh, joy and life and just getting by in the present, enjoying life as it is, Right? That's, in a sense, it's a bit cynical just because it says, like, these things that I thought I was putting my hope into don't really give me hope anymore. So I'm just going to enjoy myself in the moment. I'm just going to worry about the present. 
okay? Uh, maybe you've found yourself looking at American history for the last year or two and realizing, oh, this is not as great as I thought it was, right? That can make you very cynical, right? We, we, we live in a world that can easily make us cynical because we see the challenges of hypocrisy in the world around us. We see the way in which sin has, has made the world uh, a challenging place to live, we all know Herod's, and we've all been Israel, and we live in the consequences of that. And in a world of that, that is built like that, cynicism seem, may seem like the best option, right? Just doing whatever makes sense to kind of protect ourselves, believing the world just sucks, that's just the way it is, and nothing is really going to change. And it's kind of like we've been living, like, with the PTSD, like, with PTSD of the world that we live in, Right? Right? Experiences we've had in the past, things we've have observed, that sort of stick with us and influence how we act in the world, making us react to certain things, having challenges to actually put hope in the stuff that we worship because of what we've experienced in the past. Now, um, I don't know a lot about this, but I, I, I've heard that people with PTSD, sometimes um, specifically with abuse, I think is what I've heard, um, what, what, what therapists will do sometimes, particularly those who are sort of trained in trauma and body-based experiential approaches, is they'll try to help a person sort of internalize to gradually take in and incorporate into their character an experience of, of knowing safety and, and control in the moment they're in, right? When, when experiences that they have had from the past sort of come onto them and sort of start to influence them, they have ways of like actually tangibly reminding themselves like that's not the reality that they're living in. So it's some actual physical thing. I think a smell oftentimes is what they'll use to sort of root them, to pull them out of that experience and bring them into reality. So it's a counter experience, if that makes sense, to pull them out of their PTSD, remove them from these past experiences. Um, it's something to, to root them in the idea that they're okay. They're not living in that reality that they're being sort of um, pulled to, to, to feel like they're living in, right, and responding and reacting to. I'd submit to you that Christmas and the Advent season specifically is an experience that we embark every year to root us in the reality of God's faithfulness, to pull us out of experiences or feeling like we're in a reality where it's just, you know, the world just sucks and it can't get better, right? That, that nothing is going to change, that it's just better to just try and get by. Christmas is a season that is supposed to pull us out of that, an experiential um, uh, experience that we go through to pull us out of that. Now, to be, to be sure, there are other things that we do as Christians and in the church to, to do that throughout the year, but I think of Christmas as like a yearly tune-up to remind us that we have hope, that God is not like us and he isn't like the world around us, and that he's actually done something, he's been faithful in his word and his deed to give us hope. He doesn't just move his fingers over the trumpet valves, he doesn't just say one thing and do another, we know that's not his character. And if that's true, then we have reason to have hope even in a world full of cynicism, in our PTSD. Now, yes, it's mysterious. Yes, his timing doesn't look like ours. Yes, it's not what Micah's readers probably expected or Herod himself expected, okay? Um, they, they might have expected another conquering king, another king who kind of, in a sense, ruled out of cynicism, who didn't think the world or people could change, and so he would just go out as a conqueror. That's what it means to be a conqueror, 
right, is to go and to get rid of the enemy because you don't think there's any way that the enemy can live at peace with you. But God comes in a totally different way. And so it's good that he comes in a way we don't expect. Okay, because he comes, he sees us as people to be loved. He sees his world as something to be redeemed. He does not have cynicism about us. He has hope. And he has hope that his son come to shepherd us faithfully will lead us out of it and will start to restore us and restore the world around us. And that's what Christmas is all about. A new experience to shake us out of our cynicism and our PTSD. An experience of grace, of mercy, of love, and of hope. Something different than what we typically experience in the world around us. And so here's what I want you to do this season. So I'm challenging you to really reflect on this, to really try to internalize it this year. Respond, you know, look out, seek out in yourself, where has cynicism taken, overtaken hope in me? Right? Where do I find myself living a disconnect between what I say I believe, what I worship on a Sunday morning or in community group or throughout the week when I pray or read scripture and what I'm actually doing with my lives? Do I see a disconnect between those things? Is there a lack of hope that is the reason that those two things aren't aligned? And take this Christmas season to sort of examine yourself and ask how the hope of God come to us can sort of bridge the gap. Okay, pause and meditate. And don't just partake in Christmas in the really surfacey elements of the season, in the light shows and the Christmas markets and making food, Christmas parties. These things are really great. I'm not saying don't do them. I'm just saying don't make your experience of what Christmas is be those things. Okay, make it be the experience of actually engaging with the faithful God. Take advantage of the change of experience that we have around us I mean, if you're like me, you know that when we enter Christmas season, it feels different, right? Stuff, it feels different around us. We can tell the snow has started to come. We listen to music we don't typically listen to throughout the rest of the year. It feels different. Harness that change of experience to pull yourself out of whatever it is you're bringing into this season so that you can be retuned or recalibrated to the hope that we're supposed to find as we celebrate Christmas every year whether it's through Advent, expectation and prayer, whether it's through uh, experience with, with music. I, we had this, uh, this, this uh, worship and prayer night on Friday night, and guys, that was a really powerful experience, I felt like, personally, just sitting in the room, just praising, worshiping God, meditating on his generosity through different means, whether it was through song, whether it was through pr- uh, prayer with one another, um, whether it was through silent meditation and reflection on that. We kind of tried to have different ways for you to experience and reflect on God's um, uh, 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 generosity in this season. And that was powerful. Like it, it really does change your perspective. It's an experience to pull us out of uh, you know, the cynicism and into the reality of God's faithfulness into the way the world actually is, despite the fact that we tend to think it's not like this. Christmas is a reminder of the way the world actually is because God has come in his son Jesus. And the experiences we go through are going to pull us out of that. That that, that worship night to me was like that. Christmas hymns, sing them, but don't just sing them, reflect on what you're saying. Turn over the lyrics in your minds, right? Examine them, ask what it means that we're singing this. Okay, use it as a chance to break up the normal patterns or habits of your life. Go to a candlelight Christmas service, right? 
The experience of that, of the darkness and the stillness with the little bit of light sort of piercing that darkness is a reminder of a, of a small child coming to the world uh, to, to, to sort of bring light into it. Like that's powerful stuff. That's an experience that is going to pull us out of the normal experiences we go through in our day-to-day lives, okay? Uh, use this Christmas season to do that. I'm, I'm begging you to do that, all right, so that we can be the people that God has made us to be, right? We can have hope and we can play worship uh, and have it line up with who we are when we actually uh, are, are, are living out of our lives. Um, we're going to take some communion right now, okay? So something we do every single Sunday. To, as again, this is a reminder to us, an experience of, of who Jesus is to give us hope, uh, to recalibrate us so that when we leave this place, we can be people that are transformed by our worship, by reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done. So if you haven't gotten a communion cup, uh, please raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. Uh, the worship team is going to lead us in some worship here as we continue to uh, experience God's presence in worship. And if you need prayer for anything at all, um, please uh, avail yourself of that. Um, Aaron is going to be in the back corner over here to pray for you. Maybe you feel a lack of hope. Maybe you feel cynicism or despair or something like that. Um, get some prayer for that, okay? And Aaron, I know, would love to pray with you uh, for that. Let me pray, and then we'll enter into this time. Lord, thank you that you are faithful. You're not like us. You marry your, your actions and your character with what you say you will do, God. And Christmas is a time where we celebrate that, God, and we root ourselves in the experience of that, that this, that is the way that reality actually is because you have come into our world in Jesus and Jesus has done what he has done, for us, Lord. The world is different than how we experience it so often. I pray that this Advent season that we would find ourselves transformed and changed by our experiencing that again and again, and we may have real, true, deeply formed hope in our hearts, uh, not just for the next few weeks here, Lord, but that we can take into the next year, into 2022, and that can be a part of who we are uh, for that entire year, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.